go ahead and, um, as Nick said, get into our study this morning. Uh, this is the fourth week of a detour we've taken as a church. Next week we will return to the book of Galatians and continue through um, the rest of Galatians 5 and 6. Um, but we've taken this detour to address um, some of the things going on in our nation right now, and especially how they overlap and interconnect uh, with ourselves as Christians and with the evangelical church in America. Um, uh, this last week, I want to look at truth and deception. Um, in fact, if you, if you saw the bulletin, you know that the title for today's sermon is The Pursuit of Truth. And we find ourselves um, in a time uh, that seems full of these two ideas of, of the rabid pursuit of truth uh, and then a corresponding overwhelming sense of deception. And, um, you know, if, if I look at the things on the list specifically and, and merely just as they integrate with, uh, with Christians in particular, um, fitting into the category of deception, uh, would, would be, um, you know, uh, conspiracy theories that are tremendously on the rise right now, uh, or a spate of false prophecy that was tied into the politics of the last four years. And I'm not talking about the sort of generic prophecy uh, that, that may speak in one direction or another. I'm talking about specific predictions that did not come to pass uh, and then were just passed over neglected and forgotten. When we look at uh, the world we live in, there are constant accusations of alternative facts, of fake news, um, of, of people who are liars and lying or deceivers and deceived. Um, it, is, it is everywhere. And, and at the same time, there is an adamant attestation on every side that we are the ones that have the truth, that we are devoted to the truth. Just think of how many times you've seen in a Facebook comment feed, do your research, right? Everybody believes that they have found the facts and that their opinions are, um, are valid and, uh, and true. And yet when they look at the other side, they ask themselves, how can they be so deceived? How can they give in to such obvious and blatant lies? Now, the question is, first, a question of humility. And it's very simple. It's, do we really believe that uniquely our social class or our political side or our level of education, or these types of things, do we really believe that that inoculates us and us alone from deception? That everybody else is given over to deception and that we do not share that same danger? Okay, that's, that's question one. And question two is, what do we do about it? Why are there such a prevalence of lies and misinformation propaganda and conspiracy theories, false prophecy and deception. Why does it seem so rabid in our culture and so successful? And the truth is, lots of people have sought to answer these questions and they've talked about things like uh, gullibility or they've talked about the need to be more discerning or they've talked about um, you know, certain levels of equipping people to better vet sources or all these things. I want to suggest to you that all of those things might be valuable this morning, but they don't get at the root of the issue. And so I want to deal with what lies underneath all this. Why do we believe lies? 
Why do we give in to deception? Why does misinformation become a fuel for entire movements of people? And to do so, um, we're going to move through quite a lot of scripture today. And so if you have a Bible, you're going to want to have it on hand. We're going to look at quite a lot of passages. And the main reason is because um, I think that each and every one of us as human beings, and maybe even more so as Americans, and maybe even more so as American Christians, we believe that deception is a distant danger for other people. And I want to suggest to you that biblically, deception is the biggest and most pervasive danger there is, okay? What I want to suggest to you is that there is part of human nature that is prone to deception. And I want to unearth that, and I want to talk about that this morning. But let me just give you one last illustration. I'm a Mac user, because I'm better than all of you. Uh, and so because of that, there's a tendency for Mac users to say, I don't have to worry about viruses, because I'm running OS X, and, and it's just basically virus-proof. Okay, We do the same thing. I'm not... Uh, I don't have to worry about deception because I'm a Republican or because I'm an intelligent de Democrat, because I am high class or low class, because I'm not, you know, for this person or that person, or because I'm a Christian or these types of things. I want to tell you the operating system that uh, is endangered by deception is the human heart. Okay. And we all have one. Now, let me show you what I'm talking about here uh, in the book of Jeremiah. If you turn to Jeremiah chapter 5, one of the things that we need to recognize right off the bat is that the danger of truth and deception and discerning the two is a very old danger. In fact, if you read the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, if you look in the minor prophets, you'll constantly see the presence of those who speak truth for God and those who are deceivers, false prophets, and their ilk. But I want you to notice something here in Jeremiah chapter 5, specifically in verse 31. All right. I want to read here verse... Um, I want to read here verses 30 and 31, and then I want to pray. So here, read with me. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in this land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? Let's pray. God, you have called us as your children and as followers of Jesus to be a people of truth. And yet we know because we are human, as Jeremiah also tells us, that our own hearts are deceitful. I pray as we look at um, the danger of deception uh, and the solutions presented in your word, that you would lead us and guide us and that you would help us, help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so to get started, I want to look at four different passages that deal with deception. And I want to draw basically the same observation in each one. But look at here in Jeremiah. It says, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in this land. One, the prophets prophesy falsely. Two, the priests rule at their direction. And then three, my people love to have it so. I want to suggest to you that what we see in this passage is a co-conspiracy of deception. And I want you to see that it happens at three different levels. So first are the prophets. These are the people who say, thus saith the Lord, but in this case, the Lord said no such thing, right? They are lying and they are doing it with divine backing. What comes from my mouth is so true that it came from God himself. And then there's the priests. Remember, the priests are the ones who deal with the people day to day. They're the ones who were responsible for instructing Israel in the ways of God. And they're the ones who facilitated the worship of God at the temple. But they're now taking their direction from false prophets. Okay, 
And then there's the people at the end of this. And we would be right and appropriate to recognize that the, the people are subject, if you will here, to the deception of the priests and the prophets, right? They are receiving bad leadership. And Jeremiah has a lot to say about that. And the Bible regularly critiques those who use powers in duplicitous ways for their own ends. However, notice what it says here. It says, my people love to have it so. What does it say? It says they want to be deceived. It says that there is a compatibility between the false words of the prophets and the false orientation of the priests and the hearts of the people. Like I said, what we see here is a co-conspiracy of self-deception. The prophets are not just pre preaching falsehoods. They're preaching falsehoods that the people want to hear. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that the danger of deception at its root is the danger of self-deception. And the thing that makes us incapable of discerning the difference between true and false starts inside and not outside. It begins with self-deception. You know, when I read this passage, the prophets prophesy falsely, the priests rule at their direction, and my people love to have it so. Do you see there how there's a network, an echo chamber of reinforcing ideology? Do you see there how there's a collective participation in the lie? Would it be that hard to change this to my pundits speak falsely and my news anchors rule at their direction and the people love to have it so? Right? This sounds like an organized attempt to reinforce your own ideology with your own facts and opinions, with your own truth. Right? That's what's going on here. It is a co-conspiracy of deception. Okay? Let me show you another example. Just turn over one more book to the book of Ezekiel, this time to chapter 12. Ezekiel is also one of God's prophets. And like Jeremiah, he's addressing the people of Israel, and he's dealing with the same problem. But notice how he puts it here in verse 2. God speaking to Ezekiel says, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. Okay. Notice the logic of this passage. It's really simple. He says, the people that you're speaking to aren't going to believe you, aren't going to receive you. They're going to reject your truth. But it's not because they don't have the eyes and ears and mind to perceive truth. Right? They have eyes, but it doesn't help. They have ears, but it doesn't matter. They have a mind. They are reasonable and rational human beings. But what does he say here? He says, they hear not and they see not. Why? For they are a rebellious house. What this suggests is that we need more than just the ability to perceive the facts. Just the ability to see the evidence with our own eye. Just the ability to hear an argument for ourselves and think it through. We also need a fully functioning heart. Right? If our heart is wrong, our ears are useless. Do you see that? Why do they not see? Why do not they not hear? Because they are rebellious. Notice the order there. It's not because they don't know better. They rebel against God. It's because they rebel. They refuse to see, to hear, to learn, to know, to respond. Okay, and so again, we see here that there's a heart issue. We saw it in the first one. My people love to have it so. And here we have enough to start laying some groundwork of what I want to suggest to you today. And this is what it is. It's that we love the truth just enough to claim that we really, really love it, even when we don't. That we admire the idea of truth, but there are other things that tip the scales 
And what I would suggest to you is that oftentimes we're not driven by the pursuit of truth, but driven by our desires, and the truth becomes malleable to our own ends. Okay. In other words, what we love, my people love to have it so, right? What we see about hearts here, rebellious hearts, when we want to go our own way, that that changes the way we interact with facts, the truth, ideology in general. Okay. Let's look at another one. This one from the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Now, as I was studying this week, I was struck again at how significant the concept of truth is in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, it says that Jesus came in grace and truth, right? Jesus identifies himself in John chapter 14 as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When we get to, uh, to John chapter 18 and Jesus stands before Pilate, Jesus says, I am king and for this reason I have come to testify to the truth. And Pilate famously asks Jesus, what is truth? And walks out of the room. Now notice in this passage here that Jesus is talking with a group of people who if you read in the context are believers in Jesus at this point. They have become followers of Jesus. He's either here talking to a group that's mostly followers and has some dissenting religious leaders, or he's finding that his truth, his connection with his audience is starting to bottom out. And I would suggest to you it's like that. Read John chapter 6, where the people are fed by the miracle, you know, the feeding of the 5,000, and they come back the next day and they say, feed us again, Jesus. And by the end of it, they're leaving in droves right? This is a theme in the Gospel of John, but I want you to notice the conversation here at John chapter 8, verse 44. Uh, in fact, let's pick up in verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word, okay? Right out of the gate, he says, why aren't you comprehending what I'm saying? It's because you can't bear the weight of it. You're resistant to the truth. Notice how he continues here. He says, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then notice the implication here in verse 45. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Will you think again about the logic of that sentence? He doesn't say, but even though I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Their belief is not the exception. It is the direct consequence of Jesus speaking the truth. Okay, if I can use an illustration from the Gospel of John, he refers to Jesus as the light who has come into the world and shone into the darkness. And it says in John chapter 1, but the darkness could not comprehend it. And then he goes on in John chapter 3, and he says, those who are in the darkness hide from their light. Why? Because their works are evil rather than good. Okay. And notice the metaphor there, light and darkness, truth and falsehood, what is in reality and what is hidden and unexposed, right? That's the idea that John is talking about. And here Jesus says the same thing to the audience. He says, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Okay. This is culpable ignorance. This is saying, I do not see what you're saying while covering your eyes. This is a adamant rejection of the truth because the truth is inconvenient. Okay. And notice here, he binds it up with the devil. And here's the thing. We're only looking at passages that talk about self-deception this morning. But just, just so you know that the whole Bible supports what I'm saying, just consider how often the Bible talks about or warns about deception. 
Go back to the beginning. In the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, where does the human problem begin? It begins with deception, as Eve is deceived by the one who says, you will not surely die. But the problem there is not that Eve is gullible. The problem there is that there is something appealing about the lie itself. But you could be as God. There's connective tissue there that makes the deception more appealing than the truth itself. What would you rather be? Merely human or divine? And Eve says, I'll take divine. Thank you. And here again, we can unearth another one of the problems. We believe that when we hear things that don't align with what we want, we have reasons. But what if we're just rationalizing? What if we're just explaining away, not because our argument is better, not because our truth is more pronounced, but because, again, we wish it were true? And the deception doesn't begin in the garden. It flows throughout the scriptures. Just in the New Testament alone, how often is the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or James or Jesus himself warning about deception? Jesus says, false prophets will come. Paul says that when I leave you, false wolves will raise up and eat the sheep. John says, do not be deceived. Right? It's over and over and over again in the New Testament. And we are still convinced that those are warnings for other people. For the dumb people in the other church. For the ones who can't seem to see how obvious the lies are in front of their face. And we believe that we are safe. Let's look at one more. This one, a famous one in the book of Romans, chapter 1. Now, Paul here is talking about all of humanity. And he's talking about um, how it is that sin thrives collectively. Not just nationally, but internationally, universally, if you will. And he, he traces a chart, a downward spiral Okay, that leads to the worst things we are as human beings. But I want you to notice where he begins, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Where does it begin? It begins with the suppression of truth. Okay. Let's continue here, verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Notice verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Okay, So they suppress the truth, and if you reject the truth, what are you forced to do? To believe a lie. Because that's all there is. If you have determined that 2 plus 2 cannot equal 4, it doesn't matter what you determine after that. It is wrong. Okay, Reject the truth. Believe a lie. Reject wisdom live foolishly. But notice here that it is bound up in the rejection of God himself, which again brings us to desire. Earlier I said that we seek what we want and the truth becomes malleable, but here's another way to put it. God is true. God is the center of and the defining character of reality and therefore the defining character of truth. But for us to worship other things, to enthrone other things, to engage in idolatry, requires deception. It requires us to suppress the truth. And think of that phrase, they suppress the truth. I always think of somebody who's sitting on a trunk, right? Trying to keep it closed, not letting anything out. They suppress the truth. Uh, these are ones who, you know, are leaning against the door and not letting it come through and, and pushing it out, okay? This is where it begins, and the consequence is deception. 
And deception is desirable in this sense because it leads us to what we really want, our own idolatry, our own desires, our own exaltation. Now, how do we know that we are not deceived? How do we know that self-deception is our problem? Unfortunately, if you look biblically at the problem of deception, what you find is not encouraging. Because here is the number one trait of self-deception, it's pride. When we are the ones who believe that we are the only ones who have the truth, when we believe we're the only ones who have the fact, when we look down on those who are deceived by this, that, and the other, we should tread lightly. We should take care. Because pride and self-deception go hand in hand. And so I don't have a solution for you like a, a metric test that you can take that will say, oh yeah, you're totally believing lies. And let me just point out to you a couple of ways that don't work. Okay, the first is the agnosticism that tries to avoid deception by not coming to conclusions, right? They try and stay above the storm and say, well, no one can really know for sure. And we do this on political facts. Well, nobody was really there. We only have the testimony of a few people, so we'll never probably know what happened. And we do it with God himself. Right? In fact, that's where the word agnosticism gets its most play, is in the religious field. Well, I can't know for sure which religion is true. I can't know for sure which God is worthy of my worship. And therefore, the safest thing to do, agnostics tell us, is to not accept any as true. To be without knowledge, agnostic. But all the way back in Augustine's time, he showed why this is a flawed approach. He used an illustration, which I'll update. He said, that view of avoiding falsehood by not committing to any given belief system, he says, it's like a man who comes to a sign. Imagine a sign right here in Seattle that points and it says, California, this way, 2,000 miles. And the agnostic looks at that sign and says, I don't know who put that sign there. I don't know if their intentions were good or bad. I don't know if their knowledge was competent or incompetent. And so for me to set out on this journey and walk 2,000 miles could very well lead to New York and not to California. And so they sit at the sign and say, therefore, I'm not going to walk it at all. Augustine suggests that that's fine unless the goal of what is true is to find it. And the truth is, the man who sits at the sign will never get to California, right? There is always a risk and a commitment that has to be taken to trust others, to act on, to believe, to walk out. But when we see falsehood as something to be avoided, instead of truth as something to be pursued, we find ourselves in the same deception. And that's why agnostics can be just as arrogant and proud as anybody else because they're smart enough not to know, which is just another form of knowledge. In our postmodern world, this feels even more weighty, right? Because we look and we go, all right, if everybody is confused and if everybody can harness their truths for their own ends, if truth just becomes a tool of power and a way to propagandize and promote our own interests and protect ourselves from the interests of others, then then I'll just not play. I'll just step out. But it doesn't work, and more importantly, it will never preserve or protect. To throw out the possibility of truth at all leaves you with no way to critique injustice, to criticize evil, to fight wickedness. And so it doesn't work. Another way is the way of introspection. It says that if I just sit and if I just think and if I just search my heart, then I will be able to rightly discern where this inclination to falsehood occurs in myself, uproot it, and be true. Be, be true through introspection and you will arrive there, but the problem is you're employing the same tool that everyone else is, which is you. 
if there's something wrong with the tool, if, if the measuring tool of your human heart is bent, if the lens of your perception is foggy, then introspection is just bending back the lens to look at yourself. And no surprise, one of the primary places where people are deceived is in thinking about who they really are. And so we find ourselves in the same problem. Introspection isn't going to do it. And so I want to suggest to you this morning three aids, three pieces that help us moving towards truth. But it begins with a question. Before we even get to those three applications, it begins with this question, which we have to ask and have to be honest with, is, which is this. Do you really want to know? Is it really the truth that you want? Or will you settle for an, a convenient lie? Is it the truth that you want? Or is it the truth that validates where you are so you don't have to change? Or that validates where you're trying to get because the means justify or are justified by the end? Right? When we honor those who have elevated truth to where it belongs, what do we see in their life? We see that they've put the truth above their own lives, that they've been willing to die for the truth. Okay. And so that's the question. What's more important to you, you or the truth? Now again, answering that question in and of itself is just more room for self-deception. And so we need a few things. I want you to notice that all three passages that we're going to turn to this morning at this point, all of them directly connect to this idea of self-deception. But they employ three different solutions, and I think all of them are important. The first one is in the book of Revelation. Now, another thing about all three of these passages I want to finish with this morning, all of them are addressing Christians. It would be easy to say, well, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they're... They're addressing Israel, not the church. And Jesus, he's addressing his critics, not Christians. And Paul, he's addressing the condition of the world, not Christians. But all three of these passages are talking to us. And I want you to notice that they reiterate the same danger and they provide the solutions that we need. The first one here is in Revelation chapter 3. Here Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea. And I want you to notice what he says to this church in verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Notice two things there. First, the view that Jesus has of this church and the view that they have of themselves is incongruent on every level. They say, we are rich, and Jesus says, no, you're poor. And they say, we can see, and he says, no, you're blind. And they say, we are clothed, and he says, you're totally naked, right? Is a complete juxtaposition, and I think it would be fair to assume here that there's only one true answer, and that it's Jesus's, okay? But there's a second layer of the problem here. It's not just a disagreement on what is. It's that as long as they maintain their viewpoint, they can't get what they need. Notice what Jesus says next, verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Now he starts with a metaphor there and it's based on all the things they say. They say that they are clothed, and he says, no, you're naked, buy from me clothes, right? He, they say, we can see, he says, no, you're blind, but I have a salve that can cure you. But that's a metaphor, right? Let me remind you again that the faith healers that want you to ship away for their salve, that's not what Jesus is talking about here, right? What he is talking about here is only achieved in verse 19 through repentance. Okay. In fact, before we can repent, we have to agree with our need, which is what the Bible calls confession. 
right? Here, the church needs to say, you're right, we're blind, we're naked, we're poor. Then they can receive. And here's the thing, biblically, we need to recognize that although Christians are called to pursue the truth, as well as be witnesses to the truth, we are not the truth. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he sets himself up as being the one self-effacing, perfect witness in history. Remember what he told Pilate? I came to bear witness to the truth. When we convince ourselves that we are the gauge of truth, the litmus test of all that is real, when we convince ourselves that we can stand like Jesus as a perfect witness of the church and forget, or a perfect witness of the truth and forget that we are prone to deception, we make the same mistake of the Laodiceans here. We reinterpret life based on our own, not just perception, but our own self-exalting perception. Now, I want to suggest to you something that's not in the text. Why do they say, I am rich when they are poor? It's because they don't want to identify. They don't want to recognize. They don't want to own the fact that they are truly poor. They don't want to be known as the poor. They don't want to see themselves as their poor. Their identity is bound up in this lie. And that's where repentance comes in. Truth in the Bible is personal because to know the true God is to know truth truly. Truth in the Bible is personal because Jesus is the truth in and of himself. And so, like most things in the Christian life, to rightly address these things, we have to come to Jesus. We don't search our own hearts, we ask Jesus to search our hearts. We don't give our own interpretation of things. We ask Jesus to describe where we're really at. We surrender uh, the ability to say in God's presence, I'm fine and have need of nothing. There's a simple truth here, one that even kindergartners understand. There is a sense where the people who are in the most danger are the one uh, who are the ones who don't believe the danger is for them, right? Who is more careful? The person who goes out in the snow and knows that snow is dangerous and worries about driving in it, or the person who says, it's fine, I'm not going to have a problem, right? We have an, a tremendous ability to overestimate our ability. And we do it again with the truth. I can't be deceived. I'm not gullible. I've done my research. And so it, it begins with repentance. It begins with surrendering our own identity as truth tellers, truth knowers, truth desirers, and true in our inward parts. And instead saying like Jeremiah did, our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Second thing we need, we find in the book of Hebrews. Here in Hebrews, in chapter 4. In the context here, the author of Hebrews is looking back at those who rebelled in the book of Numbers instead of entering into the land following God's promises, refused to enter the land, received the testimony of the ten spies who went in and said, this is too scary for us, the land is too dangerous, we should not go in, instead of trusting the promises of God. And if you go back and read, which I would encourage you to do, chapter 3, you'll find the same self-deception dangers here. You'll find, in fact, the warning really quickly. Look at verse uh, 12 of chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Okay. 
It's a hard issue again. But notice what it says here uh, in verse 12 of chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. I want you to notice here that it doesn't just say that the word of God here is true in the objective sense. It would be appropriate for me, wouldn't it, to apply this principle and say, if you want to work on your heart, and if you want to know the truth, you have to begin with Scripture, because Scripture is true. But he says something stronger than that. He doesn't just say, believe what the Bible says. Because again, that doesn't address the problem, right? Why didn't those the authors talking about here believe? Because their heart was hard. They had the same word of God that we have that's talking about here, the same word of God. But notice what it does here. He says that the word of God, look at the half, uh, halfway through verse 12 there, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. What does he say here? He says that the word works on the heart. He says that the word can tell us what's actually going on in the inside. He says that the God who speaks in the word sees us as we really are. Okay. And so remember here that when it identifies the word of God as a sword, and even Ephesians says that we need the sword of the spirit in our defense, right? We wield the sword, but here we see the word of God more like a scalpel. And you cannot and should not wield the sword of scripture unless you first allowed it to be a scalpel in your own heart. Okay. That's where it has to begin. But here's a different way that I'd like to put it. Jeremiah identifies the word of God like a hammer. Okay. And like a sword, we can think of the word of God that way. In fact, one of the worst things that happens in our self-deception is that we begin to deceive others in the name of God. We begin to present our opinion, our perspective, as if it's divine, and we hit people with it. We swing our sword and we cut, but it's not the sword of the word of the Lord, right? And so before you think about um, the word as a sword, or as Jeremiah says, as a hammer, what I want to suggest to you here is that we need to understand the scriptures as an anvil. Okay, think of a blacksmith. What does he use the anvil for? The whole purpose of an anvil is that it will not change that it does not give, that it won't take the shape of what you bang against it, right? You lay a piece of hot metal on an anvil so that you can shape the metal, but the anvil does not change. The anvil does not move. It is the immovable standard. You can convince your roommates. You can convince your logic. You cannot change God's word. And this is still a danger. Because we can uh, pervert and seek to shape God's word. We can limit it. We can shrink it. We can do all these things. But you need this in your life. And if you're not a Christian this morning, this is the riskiest and most significant proposition of Christianity. That there is a true truth that's really true out there and that it has to be the metric for all other things. That God be true and every man a liar must be the focus of our hearts. And remember that every man includes you. We must not just read scripture and seek to understand it. We must use it to understand ourselves. We must not just open the Bible and employ tools of it. We must let it interpret us. Ultimately, you must let the Bible be your anvil and shape your life against it, or you will shape it against things that are bent and broken and bent and broken will be the result. Okay. Now there's a related part that I want to address here, which is very simple. The way that you do this, and the way that you continue to do this, is through obedience. You cannot just read the word and not respond. Science tells us for every action there is an equal opposite reaction. 
In other words, when energy is involved, it has to do something. It can't do nothing. Okay? If you do not allow the scriptures to shape you, eventually you will shape the scriptures to fit. If you do not obey the word of God, you will have to defend yourself against this sword. You will have to bolster your defenses, cover yourself in body armor so that the word can no longer cut like it does. And as you do so, the word will no longer do what it's supposed to do. You will render yourself hard-hearted. And so the way that you avoid that is that you react, you respond. And that doesn't just mean that when the Bible calls you out on your stuff, you repent of it. It also means when it tells you to do something, you do it. It also means when it tells you something is true, you live as if that thing was true. James compares the word of God to a mirror. And he says, a man who reads the word and does not do it is like a man who walks up to a mirror and then walks away forgetting what he looks like. Okay? The word of God will not make you clean. Only Jesus can do that. But the word of God will reveal where you need cleansing, just like a mirror. Right? Beneath the mirror, you need the sink. And for us, that's confession and forgiveness, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, repentance. That's the sink. That's where we're washed. But the mirror reminds us, oh, I need to wash my face. What happens is, if you read the word to justify yourself, going, boom, I knew that I was right on this issue. If you wield the word to attack other people and criticize them, which is often just a deflection technique, right? So that the sword can't cut you so deeply, which is why over and over again in history, the most pronounced judges on particular sins have ended up being culpable in them, right? If you, if you do that, it's as if you walk up to a mirror and you see your face and you go, wow, that zit is so ugly. And you take a post-it note and you just draw that part of your forehead with no zit and you just stick it on the mirror. And over time, you stick and you cover the mirror and you no longer see life as it is and you believe that you were the person on the post-it notes. That is the self-deception we're talking about. The word will only protect you from that if you allow it to do what it's supposed to, if you let it be the anvil. And what we're talking about is painful. And this is the real reason why we're self-deceived. It's because the truth hurts. Your mom told you that when you were three. Okay, we avoid pain, we distract, we diminish, because we don't want to admit we're a person who would think that. We're a person who would do that. We are the name that that person just called us. And so we rationalize and explain it away and justify ourselves, and we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, so we have to come to Jesus, and that involves repentance. We have to come to the Word of God, and that involves obedience. But there's one more, and this is from Ephesians chapter 4, and then we'll close. Again, Paul here is speaking to Christians, and I want you to notice that the danger that we've been talking about, deception, is a present and clear danger for us. Look here in chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave, Jesus speaking here, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. What is that? That's the church, right? That's what Paul is talking about. Here he's given us leaders and gifts so that the church can be equipped to be the body of Christ. Look verse 13. Until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, We need to grow in our maturity, in our understanding, in our knowledge of God. Okay, But notice, why do we need this? Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Do you see it there? What is the danger? that we would be deceived. And notice here, it's not just by false prophets, but by human cunning, craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Sound contemporary? I think so. And what does Paul say? If you're going to avoid that, then you need to grow. And if, you need, if you're going to grow, it's going to happen in community. 
that's going to happen in the church. And so he says, we are naturally children carried by every wind of doctrine, but look at verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. What is the answer to this? What is the way to avoid this? What is the way to grow and therefore not be so prone to deception? We have to speak the truth in love to one another. We need community. We need the church. And here, this should make so much sense to all of us. Because think of how self-deception works. Self-deception has a very small radius. It only works for you. Right? Everyone around you is going, I can't believe they believe what they believe. Right? Every person who says, we have the facts, the truth is on our side. Right? There's people on the other side going, wait, really? Right? And it's, it's mutual. It's cross-beneficial. We are all prone to deception. But here's the good news. We're not all prone to the same deception. Right? We're all bent, but we're bent in different directions. Now, that doesn't mean that we can just neglect Scripture or Jesus is the truth and gather together and enough perspectives will find the truth. Okay? It doesn't work. Community in and of itself does not bring about truth. Truth is not subject to popular opinion. Okay? It can't be verified in that way. But when we speak the truth in love to one another and that truth is bound in Scripture and focused on Jesus, then we make progress and we grow together. Okay? You need people in your life who are going to speak the truth that hurts. You need people in your life who are going to call you out on your little deceptions, challenge your justifications, point out your inconsistencies, Ask why you say you believe one thing and do another. You need those people in your life, okay? But I wanted to suggest a very particular and specific version of this. This is true. You need people in your life, but, but let's just recognize that the echo chambers I mentioned earlier are communities, right? These reinforcing uh, forums where people, you know, embrace ridiculous conspiracy theories like QAnon, they're communities, and they build one another. They become greater than the sum of its part. It encourages and strengthens individual belief because everybody feeds that belief. What will keep that from happening? I would suggest to you that one of the things that's unique about the church in its design, and you can see it even here in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, is that it is unified across all social structures and spheres. It is by design, tremendously diverse. It doesn't just surround you with people who look like you, talk like you, think like you, live like you, make money like you do. It intentionally sets those things aside, equalizes the playing field, and says this community is for all comers in all places, and puts them all in the same body and says you are all one. It gives a tremendously unique amount of unity. And when the body doesn't reflect this diversity, when a church becomes monolithic or homogenous in a particular way, then it is just as prone to the echo chambers of whichever homogenous component it is. That's why churches have become, you know, tremendously progressive or tremendously right-wing. If you have a church full of people in Make America Great Again hats, okay, then you are so similar, then you're going to be prone to particular deceptions. And if you have an entire church that is committed to the progressive tenets of our time, then you also will be prone to these deceptions. But the church by its design, in its diversity, allows us to navigate these things because we have an innate unity, respect, trust, and love for one another that changes these things. And so this is what I want to suggest to you. In these incredibly controversial times, where the world is so divided, we have to talk about these issues in the church. We have to. We cannot just keep it out of this community because it's tense, because it's hot, because we disagree. And we cannot say, I have these other people to talk about these things. You need to find the people in the church who you know believe differently who walk differently, who live differently, whose skin color is different, who voted differently. And we have to talk about these things. And again, it's because both of us are prone to deception. 
It's because both of us are prone to be caught up in these things. And so we need to learn to listen to and not just argue with, not just defend our own positions, but listen to one another. To lay ourselves before them and go, all right, here's what I believe. Where does this not make sense to you? Where does this align? Show me the scriptures that show this is wrong. Where do you have concerns about the sites that I visit or the comments I leave on Facebook or you know the community that I call myself home? And we need to do it in a way that is mutual and humble. And we need to do it in a way that invites Jesus and recognizes that he has made us one body, but it has to be done. It has to be done. The scariest thing that we should be able to envision as Christians who care about the church is a church that just becomes an amplifier of the falsehoods of our time. It doesn't matter which falsehood. You can pick your preference. You can decide which one is better or worse than this thing. We are called to be a people of the church or of, of the truth, witnesses to the truth, to speak for Jesus Christ. And that requires accountability and it requires humility and it requires iron sharpening iron and it requires repentance. And so my prayer for us is that we would take the warnings of Scripture seriously. We would get off our high horse of our opinions being unassailable. We would forget and repent of the occasions where we employ very quick avenues to what happened and embrace single reports without evidence that point in the way that we always thought it would go. We need to own up to lies in our own camps and in our own belief systems and in our own groups when we have them and be as honest and confrontational about the lies of our party as that party. Or we will forget what the truth is and we will do such a good job of deceiving ourselves, we will be deceived. But let me remind you, that this is word for word according to the Gospel of John why Jesus came. God could have looked at people and said, look, you are so against me that you've created a delusional world, so have your delusions. But God loved us so much to make our delusions not work, not, not comfortable, not settle. He loved us so much to interject and impose and present the truth in a way that was so confrontational that they killed Jesus for it. And he climbed up on a cross, willingly and freely, and died to give us a new heart. Because our heart was bent. Impossible to unbend without divine intervention. And so Jesus came in grace and truth, and he spoke in truth and love. And it gives us the ability to know the truth. And as Jesus says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from self-deception. Let's pray. Father, at best today, all we've seen um, is a reasonable account that this is a real concern biblically. At best, we've seen that you have given us resources to combat this in our own hearts. But it begins, Lord, with us just confessing that we've settled for our self-descriptions, our self-justification, our own reasons, our flawed logic and our rationalizations. God, we want to begin this morning with the truth, the truth that we are not true. And we just ask God that that would bring us to humility and honesty. We thank you for giving us one another so that we can speak into one another's lives and not just sit and watch as we drive off cliffs, not just sit and watch as we believe lies, 
not just sit and watch as we grow more callous to the truth, Lord. I pray that you would make us as a congregation those who exhort one another daily. And we thank you for your word, Lord, that is reliable, faithful, and always true. That even when we don't like it and we wish that we could change it, Lord, that it works at our heart. That we kick against the goads may be true, Lord, but the goads are grace. And we thank you for ultimately and most importantly your son, Lord, who loves us, who is truly true, truth in the inward parts, a perfect heart, a perfect witness, a perfect voice, a perfect prophet, and perfectly obedient to the truth as well. Living a perfect life we could not live, dying the death that we deserve, and making an invitation to the self-deceived to know truth and be set free. We thank you for all of that this morning. We ask that you do that work in our heart, even as we worship in Jesus' name. Amen.